You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. If you have heard about this via newspaper headlines or news clips, then congratulations. But that means that you don't fully understand just how bad things are in Canada's emergency rooms. Nurses, doctors, personal support workers, etc., have been asking for better investments in our public health care system. What is happening in emergency rooms across the country now is worse than during the depth of the repeated COVID waves. Overworked, burnt out and understaffed. That's the situation nurses across Canada continue to face in the workplace. We're on the brinks of collapse and we need an action plan and uh, we need it now. It's one thing to hear these stories on the news, all jumbled up together, second hand, however you get them. But just imagine if you or a loved one was walking into that situation or, more accurately, waiting on a stretcher in an ambulance outside of that situation, hoping that they will eventually take you into that situation. You're already worried. You know something's wrong. But you also know that in the current crisis, unless you're actively dying, you're going to be waiting and waiting and waiting. The crisis in Canadian emergency rooms did not happen overnight. It is not entirely the result of the pandemic. It began a long time ago, and it's been accelerated by everything that's happened the past couple of years. But we are approaching a tipping point. The question is how much more this system can take. We are already seeing ER closures, scalebacks, and incredible wait times. Now, when these things happen in other parts of the medical system, like doctor's offices or walk-in clinics, things take longer. When these things happen in emergency rooms, people die. So what happens next? Are we going to fix this? Or just let it break and break until we are left with bodies and burnt-out doctors and not much else. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Kashif Perzada is an emergency room physician in Toronto. He has an up-close and personal view of this crisis. Hello, Dr. Perzada. Thank you so much for allowing me to join you. You must be very busy right now. I'd like to start, maybe if you could just describe for us what it's like to work in an emergency room right now on a daily basis. We're hearing a lot of stories that they are at the breaking point. What does that actually look like on the ground? So you'll walk into a shift and you'll see rows of ambulances trying to offload their patients. On one shift, uh, it was about 20 of them. That means there's no room to receive these patients inside the emergency department. You go in to start your shift and you find out there's no actual patients to see because there's no beds to see anybody. And the only place that's actually moving is a bunch of areas with chairs where you move very frail and elderly people in and out of chairs to examine them and see them. And so 
What you have is a situation where you have total gridlock in a lot of hospitals, even at this point, which is not traditionally a very busy time for us. When you say there's no beds to see them, you mean because those beds are taken up by other people who need to be moved into a bed in the hospital or elsewhere, but you don't have that either? Pretty much. So you have, on average, like let's say we have 30 beds at one hospital, 25, 28, even all 30 of them will be occupied by patients waiting to be admitted upstairs. People, And then every time you bring some Someone in who's not very well, they become another patient who needs to be admitted as well. So it's an endless, endless stream uh, backing up into a big uh, dam that's blocking everything. In the early days of the pandemic, we talked about this as a result of COVID itself. You know, we had so many cases and we had no vaccines and people needed to get to the hospital. And that was what was crushing the system. Is this COVID patients that you're seeing? Is it people with regular, I shouldn't say regular, but you know, the things that would typically send them to the emergency room? What is it? It's kind of a combination. So COVID, it's not a disease that kills like one in five, like it started with at the start of the pandemic when we were we locked down, we waited for the vaccines to come. It's become something that's about equivalent to heart disease and um, cancer in terms of mortality risk. So in the last you know year, we've added this whole new disease, this new disease that you know is new to the medical world, new to everyone, but it kills as many people and disables as many people as cancer and heart disease, if you look at the mortality numbers. So that's a huge burden that's been placed on the system, which was already strained at the beginning. And now you have, you know, let's say an elderly person gets COVID, they lose their function to live alone uh, faster, recovering from an infection like that. They become unable to walk, unable to feed themselves, and that aging process is accelerated in those people. Um, small children who who catch COVID and all the other viruses that are circulating, they need to be hospitalized more frequently than before. So we have a lot of kids getting hospitalized now from daycare or school exposures, but not necessarily always from COVID, but just from all the other things that are circulating as well. So it's kind of, um, it's a big new burden that's been added to the system. It's not the only thing, but it's made everything, you know, 30, 40% worse. What are the other things? So we have more patients than you would typically have, at least before the pandemic, even if they're not presenting with just classic serious COVID. What else? Is it people who've left the profession? Is it doctors who are absent because of COVID? Like, it's it sounds like you're describing a multifaceted problem. Oh, definitely. There's, um, there's always someone getting sick and needing backup. You know, th- before the pandemic, we have a backup system where we have someone ready to come in to cover for a sick call. We use it maybe once a month. Now we use it almost every day because either... Uh, the hospital's overwhelmed and we need an extra hand or we or someone is sick or someone's uh, family member is sick with COVID. They're even reducing the amount of time you need to stay at home. Basically, they're saying if you don't have symptoms and you have a negative rapid test, you can come into work as long as you wear a, a good mask. So our um, sort of isolation stuff is, is, is decreasing with time. But, you know, that person takes off their masks to have a, a lunch break or something. They could infect other staff members and it keeps on going from there. So you have... People getting sick is one thing. People leaving the profession is definitely another thing. Um, A lot of us, a lot of departments in the city can't fill all their nursing and uh, hospital uh, doctor shifts. So you have people who basically burnt out and have moved on to other careers. So those are those are huge factors. What kinds of things do you do on a daily basis in the emergency room now that you wouldn't have done before just to get by? You know, how do you uh, slap on the duct tape, I guess, to keep the car rolling? So one thing uh, we do, we stay in, we stay longer to try to see as many people as we can. It's hard to leave your colleagues in the lurch like that. So we're all asked to stay a bit longer to help out. That's one thing. We're, we're all being asked to pick up extra work as well. 
But that that is going to end up burning more of us out faster. You only have so much to do. People are, I think, some hospitals are trying to throw money around to nurses and doctors to work more shifts. Um, I don't know if that's going to work. It's kind of a fixed supply of people right now. The other thing is, um, you know, going back to some of the, the side effects of COVID, we have to do a lot more scans on people to catch things like blood clots, which we're seeing a lot more. So that's another added stress. So we have to order a young person can't feel their left arm. You know, before you could say, you know, maybe it's a pinched nerve in their neck. Now you have to make sure that it's not a stroke because we are seeing stroke in young people a lot more than before. We invited you on because we did want a doctor who could tell us about this, you know, on the ground level in terms of what you're seeing every day. But I know that you probably also talk to your colleagues uh, in ERs across the province and across the country. How common is an ER like what you've just described to us in yours? Oh, I think I think it's fairly common. Talking to colleagues, um, we all, uh, pretty much all of us work at, at one or, or two sites is typical. And we share information with each other about, you know, how bad is it? You know, kind of with the, the, the subtext that maybe I could move over to your place if it's better. Uh, but nowhere, nowhere is better. Everywhere has, has the same stresses and the, the same kind of overwhelming um, burden that, um, that is being faced across the system. And I think it's like that all over, all over North America. So there's no uh, place that's really unaffected by this. Does the public get that? Now, I, I ask that in a way, you know, we ran some clips in the intro to this show about the reporting that's been done on, you know, uh, hallway medicine and ambulances waiting. And, you know, the the tagline that our system is at the brink of collapse, which is why we're examining this. Do people understand that, just what that means until they actually need the ER and they have to show up and see what's happening? That's the thing. I don't think people understand until they actually see it for themselves when they're sitting on an ambulance stretcher for like 10 hours in one of our hallways uh, until they experience that. Like after a car accident, they're basically shuffled off to sit in a hard wooden chair in the in a waiting room surrounded by hundreds of people waiting to be seen. Like, I don't think people appreciate how bad it's gotten unless they see it for themselves. And I hope, you know, that your listeners don't have to use our services. But if they do, obviously come, we'll find a way to take care of you. But really, really pay attention to the healthcare workers who are telling you that it's not where it should be right now. When an emergency room is at the breaking point, the way you described, who is the most impacted? I mean, I assume that, you know, patients who arrive obviously at risk of death get triaged and get seen. But what about somebody who just, you know, who shows up with a condition, they don't know what it is, it's causing them intense pain? Like, who bears the brunt of the overcrowding? I think it's um, it's kind of shared equally, but I think the brunt will be faced by people who are um, you know most vulnerable, who can't really advocate for themselves. So those could be you know seniors who aren't so tech savvy, who didn't know that they should have gotten like you know the flu vaccine or the or the updated COVID vaccine. Let's say they'll come in very sick eventually when they do get sick. The other folk are um, people who stay at home too long with symptoms that should get checked out and miss an important diagnosis. And that's what I'm afraid of is that if you, you know, people are facing, you know, 10, 12 hour waits uh, in, in a lot of cases, especially in high demand times like evenings and weekends, they will not show up for a problem that they should get checked out. So that that's really what I'm afraid of. Are you seeing that now from problems people might have had during the pandemic when they didn't have as much contact with the medical system? Like I, we heard about this uh, during the waves of COVID when lots of things were shut down that people would not get early warning signs for things like cancer or heart disease checked out and that we would be seeing a crush of these people after the pandemic when the symptoms had worsened? 
I, I wouldn't say it's a crush. Like we are picking up a lot of things. It's hard for me to tell because I see 20, 30 patients a shift. I can't see a whole system at once, but right. I've diagnosed, you know, more diabetes, a lot of cancers, a lot of a lot of things that um, you know, pre-pandemic I wouldn't have seen as frequently. So I think there's definitely a factor. It's hard to say. I don't have access to the the full numbers on that, but it feels like there's a lot more of this happening. One of the things that we covered uh, in the first two episodes of this week is the lack of nurses and the lack of family physicians. And what our guests described to us was a system that would compensate for those lacks by driving more people who otherwise would be fine you know, talking to a family doctor to the ERs and kind of exacerbate the overload you're seeing there. Is that something you've seen? Oh, 100%. Like we are taking on almost a family medicine role for a lot of patients that we see because we can expedite a lot of things that can't be done in the community for some reason. Like we can get same day, you can get your scan or your blood test done. And a lot of patients will wait for that because they're not getting or not don't have access to that. Um, I think, you know, the solution to that is to open up more centers like what we could provide. Maybe not ERs, like um, where you, you're not dealing with life-threatening problems, but kind of, and the OMA, the Ontario Medical Association has mentioned this as one of their ideas, is that open up these kinds of urgent care clinics that people who don't have family doctors, people who have complex needs, who need like, you know, minor surgery can come easily um, and um, and get treatment outside of um, a family medicine system that's really overstrained right now. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that, you know, we weren't starting from a good place even before this happened. Why weren't we? How come our emergency rooms were so close to the breaking point before we were even hit with a pandemic? I think a lot of, you know, I kind of deferred maintenance, you'd call it, or just uh, just negligence. I think there was no incentive um, in a system like ours to really plan for the future. We knew that um, the boomers were aging, that there would be a huge demand on services even now. Even, bef- even if there was no pandemic, we'd still have a lot of strain. We knew um, from flu seasons before that the system's always brought to the breaking point in uh, January, February, when flu is at its peak. But we never really planned or changed anything. So it's really on us and on our leaders that uh, that we didn't plan ahead for something like this. I want to talk about two kinds of solutions. The first would be immediate, and then we can talk about long term. You know, what would make a difference to your ER and other ERs in the in the similar situations? Like tomorrow, you know, would millions of dollars in cash even help right now? Or is the problem bigger than that? No, I, I think it would help in the long term. But now, like, especially going into fall and winter, I think the biggest difference would be to really get people to uptake uh, the flu shot and uh, the updated COVID shot. That could reduce a lot of hospital visits. And I think, you know, governments need to get that message that um, COVID-19 is, uh, don't pretend it's gone, um, respect it, work around it, mitigate it, but don't pretend it's gone. And be honest with the public about that. You know, this is a movie that doesn't have a clear and happy ending, but it's more like, you know, The Simpsons, which is limping on forever and ever. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, therapies will keep getting better, you know, vaccines, antivirals. Um, I think, you know, they should have an appetite to bring back, um, you know, some public health measures if things get out of control as the winter goes on. So that's that's the number one thing I think that will help right now. Number two, um, really open up to foreign trained workers. There's a lot of underemployed foreign expertise, the nurses and physicians that they could really bring in quickly. 
I work with some of them that were struggling through exams and trying to get placements. We could mobilize these people very quickly and put them to work. Uh, number three, you know, urgent care centers. Like, not everyone needs full-on emergency care. Like, they don't need to be put on ventilators. They don't need the kind of life-saving equipment we have in hospitals. Really, you know, urgent care clinics everywhere can take the load off of family medicine clinics, can take a lot of that burden off, give a home to the, I think, 10% of, of Ontarians and uh, Canadians who don't have family physicians. Um, the other thing is, like, um, uh, nursing home care and palliative care services. Like, it's overloaded. It's part of the backlog in our hospitals. They really need to plan for this because people are getting more disabled and can't be cared for at home and they need a place to go. First of all, I want to just thank you for actually articulating something that we can do. A lot of the conversations we've had uh, so far have been like, well, we need government to do this. We need somebody to step in. We need et cetera, et cetera. But just getting your dang shots um, will make a difference. I think so. Like um, Australia had a pretty rough flu season on top of their COVID. Like uh, flu, I've, I had it 15 years ago. I'll never, ever forget. And I line up like a good boy for my shots every year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never, I never want to get that again. What can we do in the long term? I know that, you know, the situation that you've described, it must make it really hard to recruit young medical students to go into this line of work when all they see or hear is just how awful it is, just how many extra hours you're working and you have no space to put anybody. How do we increase our capacity to recruit young medical students to work as emergency room uh, doctors? I think overall, we can be safe to think, like I work with a lot of pre-medical students and I, I mentor them and you know try, write re reference letters for them. There's a lot of people that really answer the calling and want to help and serve. I don't think we'll ever ever have a shortage of that, but we can make it easier for them to work and make it safe for them to work and show them that the public is interested in maintaining a system in which um, we can treat people effectively uh, and not give up, basically. So I think I think we'll always have people, but we have to make it easier for them to stay in this in this fight, basically. How do we do that? So I think respect, respect them and their um, expertise, and but also protect them. Right now, hospitals have um, great ventilation. That happened after SARS. So you remember SARS-1, you know, in 2003? Yes. Every um, hospital in Ontario was upgraded uh, ventilation-wise after that. And when COVID came along, um, along with masking, almost nobody will get sick as working in a hospital now in Ontario. I can't say the same for other provinces. They'll get sick maybe from kids coming home from school or maybe uh, from other workplaces, but from hospitals, it's very rare to happen. And that's what we did to protect workers. So you know, extend that attitude to all workers. You know, we want you to work in a system that works. We don't want you to uh, be despair over your patients by having to make horrible decisions um, that, you know, don't improve them. So keep the system well-resourced. I think that's the best way to do it. Is there a way we can or should overhaul the emergency room system to make it more efficient and more able to handle occasional, hopefully not constant, surges in capacity? You know, there's always a tortured debate about private involvement in our system. But I think when you have a centrally planned system like most health systems in Canada, it's really hard to come up with innovative ideas and empower people who have innovative ideas. Like, But I look at countries like, like Israel, which has like kind of like Imagine your province had like four competing ministries of health trying to outdo each other and compete for quality and, and price, but they're all public, right? That's that's one way we could do it in which you have people coming up with solutions. It's really hard to plan and, and know everything from the top down. 
but maybe stuff on the ground from teams working on their own can come up with stuff. So that's one way. Like you don't want private involvement where you have like this crony capitalism where people are skimming money off like the American private system. But you want to have a system where you have new ideas that can get implemented. Right now, like it's almost like going to some meetings at at, uh, at some of the places I work. It's like banging your head against the wall. It's a lot of circling back and let's put a pin in that and that kind of talk. Like it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere. So I've 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 stopped going to any of those meetings. It's just frustrating because no one listens and there's improvement is very slow to happen. But I think if there was some more competition or some more uh, outlet for innovation, there might be a better way to do it. I'm going to ask a bit of a third rail question, and we're almost done here. Is there a role for privatization in any of the things you've described? You know, one of the things you mentioned was people showing up at the ER as kind of a catch-all for when they need access to services quickly, like a blood test or something like that. Is there a role in your mind for private clinics in that system? I think you could as long as they're accessible and they, um, you know, serve all of the public. You know, most clinics run by, in you know, if you go to a walk-in clinic, they're all private, rerun by you know the staff that work in them. If you, as long as you maintain access, but you can do you know private delivery, that's already what we have. But you could extend the role of it and have these services compete with each other, uh, and to provide better care for everybody. And it has to be all of the systems that in the west in the Western world that have private options are heavily regulated to maintain access. So. That would, that would be the caveat. You can do it and it can provide better service, but it has to be accessible and very heavily regulated. Last question then. What will you be watching for over the next several months? And I mean this in two ways. Uh, first, like what will you be watching to, to see if we're in more trouble or not? And second, are you hopeful about anything that might come out of what we've dealt with this summer and maybe Canadians finally learning just how fragile their system is. I hope um, that we don't learn a harsh lesson this this winter. I hope that we don't see a huge rise in cases that overwhelms our system, but I, I can't see why we wouldn't. Like there's everything's pointing to some kind of surge coming in the winter, new variants coming our way, you know, flu coming back to bite us. I hope um, we act faster than, than we did last time, like bringing back some measures. And then hopefully we'll learn a lesson on how to plan and how to deal with these challenges that are facing us. Um, you know, it's, it's um, you know, we've been through seven waves of COVID. Um, we should have learned more by now, but maybe we'll have to learn again. I don't know. I hope it doesn't happen. I really do. I hope all the vaccines that we've gotten, I hope, you know, most people have gotten sick at least once or twice. I hope that provides something. But I can't, the scientific reason, scientifically, it's hard to imagine why it, it, this thing won't stop. Uh, very unscientifically, I'm just going to cross my fingers. Me too. <laughs> Both my hands. Thank you, Dr. Prezada. Thank you so much. Dr. Kashif Prezada, an emergency room doctor working in Toronto. That was the big story, part three of our examination of the healthcare crisis. You can find the previous two episodes at thebigstorypodcast.ca or, of course, wherever you get podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca, and you can call and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. We're available wherever you get podcasts, and via smart speaker, just tell it to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.